we're going to talk about um, relationships with our parents. And, um, you know, even thinking about this, you know, we have to, to recognize that there's a whole range of diverse different experiences, um, even in talking about this topic. There's some people whose parents are no longer alive, one or both. There are some um, who, like uh, our daughter, were adopted. Um, and so, I, you know, I think though what's interesting, it's kind of like when you talk about marriage, the idea that marriage is not heaven, but it's a signpost pointing us to what we were made for um, is actually good news for everybody, no matter what your situation is. And the same is true of thinking about relationships with your parents, because God reveals himself as our father. Um, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, J.I. Packer, said that you can pretty much take the measure of how well someone understands the Christian faith by how much they make of the fact that they're an adopted child of God. If that's not the thing that animates their prayers and their faith, then they really don't understand Christianity very much at all. This is why in Galatians, Paul, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus came to redeem us so that we might become sons of God. That's the ultimate, like purpose cause, purpose cause, so that we might become sons of God. And then the Spirit was sent so that we could feel like sons of God. So rather than, uh, you know, maybe what you've always understood, that the ultimate is to get out of hell free, and if I pray Jesus into my heart, then I won't go to hell, and I'll, I'll go to heaven when I die. Actually, that is such a small, little slice of what Christianity is about. Christianity is about how rebel sons and daughters are made adopted children of God, forever secure and safe in his love. There's a reason the Apostle Paul says that God came, that Jesus came to make us sons. It's because daughters and even natural born sons could be disinherited, but adopted sons never could. So that feature of uh, Roman law is something that he pulls upon in trying to explain that. It's not so much that you, you know, like it doesn't count for women, right? It's really that there's an extra intensity of the security that comes from being an adopted child of God. But the Bible does speak a lot about parents, and we're going to look at some of that tonight. The thing that's interesting, though, is even the way the Ten Commandments talk about honoring your mother and father, um, Christians have understood this for millennia as being one kind of as, as pointing to an even greater trust in the one who has made us and the one who has set earthly authorities of all kinds in place. But as we get into this, I'll explain that. So uh, I'm going to actually read several of these scriptures because they bear on what we're going to be talking about tonight, and then we'll dig in. So this is the first. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Uh, you probably will recognize this. This is one of two places where the Ten Commandments are um, written in the Old Testament. And I think it's very important to understand the context. The context is, I am the Lord who brought you out of slavery. Therefore, stay free. 
by living the way I've made you to live. You could think of the Ten Commandments as the conditions under which true community flourishes. This is the way you are to model for the watching world that having God as your father changes everything. Verse six of Deuteronomy five, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Jump down all the way to the bottom of that paragraph to verse 16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you so that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now in Matthew 10, Jesus speaks about what sometimes is a conflict, the authority of God our allegiance to God and our allegiance to our parents. And he has some strong words here in Matthew 10. He says this, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. If you've never read this verse before, this might upset you. Um, it's one of those that you're gonna have to meditate on a little bit, I think. Do not, come, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Two more passages we're going to look at. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to do, well, we'll do Ephesians 6 first. Ephesians 6. This is in a whole section that begins in chapter 5, verse 21, with a very important verse where it says, Submit one to another out of reverence for God. Right after that, it talks about wives submitting to their husbands. But I will tell you, and I'm sure I'll mention this again when we talk about marriage, I always refuse to read. Ephesians 5 in weddings unless we read Ephesians 5.21. Because so often, even some of our Bible translations have like a, su a subheading that cuts off verse 22 from verse 21. And then you misunderstand the whole thing. Even chapter 6 is still part of submit one to another, one to another out of reverence for Christ. And we'll talk about the importance of that. But here, relating kids and parents, it says this, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then this verse in Ephesians chapter three, now this one actually has a word play in the Greek that is lost in our English translations. 
But where in verse 14 it says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And that word translated family there is actually a word play on the Greek word for father. So it would almost be like we bow before the Father from whom all kind of father family is named. In other words, even the idea of human families derives ultimately from the God who is our Father, not the other way around. I know that often we project what God is like from our earthly parents, but actually God says, I am the archetype. And even the very idea of family and what fathers are like ultimately is rooted in me and who I am. So there's four passages. We're gonna, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna kind of work with these as we talk about relationships, gospel-driven relationships with parents. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your scripture. We thank you that this is such an important topic that you talk about it in so many places. And um, we pray, Lord, that you would help us even now to begin to get a grasp, uh, not only on how we are to live, but on who you are. And we pray you do that uh, by sending your spirit to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, you, you know, you misunderstand the Ten Commandments if you just start with all the things you're supposed to do. This is why I'm not in favor of just posting the Ten Commandments without the preamble on courtroom walls or in yard signs that I see sometimes in my neighborhood because you really completely distort the whole point of the Ten Commandments. It is not, you know, I brought you out of slavery, now let me put you back into slavery with all these rules. And that is how most people hear it. It's so important that the preamble be the start because it's about relationship and it's about a relationship rescue. And then God saying, because I've, now that I've rescued you, I want you to be free. And here's how you live free. As I've said, I think even at the beginning of this series, I think one of the most important verses in the Bible is in Isaiah 54, 5, where it says, your maker is your husband. And the one who marries himself to you in the gospel is also the one who made you and actually tells us how he made us to live. As Tim Keller has put it, when you break God's laws, they break you. Because you're going against the design. And that's why in the Ten Commandments, there's this promise. Now, it's not an absolute promise that if you honor your father and your mother, that everything will work and you'll live a long time. We know that that's not true. But what it's saying in sort of a a way like the Proverbs are not actual promises, but they're proverbial sayings. It's basically saying this is generally how it works. Break God's laws and they break you. If you honor your father and mother, generally things will go better for you, even in this life. That's what it's saying. Uh, This is why James, in his letter, James the brother of Jesus, calls the law the perfect law of freedom. Now that's a hard concept for us because we tend to think of the law as being the opposite of freedom. Freedom is being free to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. Of course, if you think about that, if that's your, the, the way you're committed to living, then to that extent that you're free, you'll also be alienated. Because no one can actually live in rich relationships if they're committed to doing whatever they want, whenever they want. 
with no restrictions whatsoever. And so in so many ways, our culture pursues kind of an idea of freedom that undermines the longing we have for rich relationship. The Ten Commandments were given to help us understand how then shall we live. But this fifth commandment about mothers and fathers, um, for millennia, Christians have understood it to be not just about the specific example of mothers and fathers, but what God is teaching here is that we should respect all rightful authority. So for instance, when um, in Romans 13, Paul says that we are to obey our earthly rulers, he's drawing upon this commandment. It's similar to when Jesus says, you know, that if you lust after a woman, that you have broken the commandment, do not commit adultery. Committing adultery is the most grievous example of not honoring sex the way God created to be honored. And so it is that with this commandment, to fail to honor your mother and father is the most grievous and the closest at hand way to break the principle of honoring God by honoring the authorities that he's given us. You understand? So it's more than just teaching us about mothers and fathers. It's actually teaching us about submitting to all rightful authority. And, and Christians have understood this uh, for a long time. The Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in the 1500s, uh, says it this way. What is required by the fifth commandment? That I show all honor and fidelity to my father and mother and to all in authority over me. Submit myself with due obedience to their good instruction and correction and also bear patiently with their weaknesses and shortcomings since it pleases God to govern us by their hand. So when we think about this, Here's what we need to remember, though. God is the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. And we submit to him in submitting to the lesser authorities that he has set up. The important thing about that is this forbids tyrannical authority. No one can take the place of God in the way they exercise authority. We are called to honor our mother and father in the Lord. That automatically puts a restriction on what mothers and fathers are actually allowed to command. This is why in Ephesians, Paul says, submit one to another in the Lord or out of reverence for Christ. It's always connected to God as the ultimate authority. I've sometimes seen people diagram biblical authority in a really screwed up way, and maybe some of you have been raised with this, where you've got God, and then you've got the father, and then you've got the wife and the children. But it's never that way. Every person, children, mothers, fathers, all of them are directly responsible to God. And therefore, when a parent exercises authority in a way that would tell us to do something God says we cannot do, we actually have to disobey them because our ultimate reverence is to the Lord. That's really important to understand. Now, that doesn't mean that it's easy to discern and apply, but you have to know that parental authority is a delegated authority. And what we're told to do is honor them 
not worship them. And there's a huge difference, a huge difference. God is the ultimate authority. That means all authorities answer to his higher authority. And if it comes down, like I said, to obeying your parents or obeying God, what does Paul, what does Jesus say in Matthew 10? Like it may come down to, you have to become an enemy of people in your family to honor God. That's a strong thing. And it sort of, I think, will probably be upsetting to some people's understanding of family. Uh, different cultures actually even understand this differently or have sort of different rules about family relationships. But the ultimate authority is not our culture, is not even our own parents, but God himself, right? And there are times in Acts chapter five, you see this laid out very clearly in verse 28 and 29, where the apostles are commanded to not speak about Jesus. They're beaten and they're told, do not speak about Jesus anymore. And you know what they say? They say to the authorities, we must obey God rather than men. We cannot obey that command. Even though these same apostles understand that God has given governmental authorities to govern us. But if they overreach their authority, for the sake of God, we must disobey. That's hugely important to understand. All right. Well, here's, here's another thing that I think is really important to draw from some of these passages, which is this. Ultimately, parents' authority should lead us and even teach us how we are to submit to God. Ideally, our parents are to govern in a way to love in a way that will increase our reverence and trust in God. I understand that doesn't happen. Uh, it never happens perfectly. Sometimes the, uh, the, the rupture, uh, the distance between what should be and what is, is huge. And probably for some of you in this room, uh, it's particularly huge. Um, there's a guy, Dan Allender, Christian counselor. I really like so much of what he's had to say. He actually has a really helpful book. It's called How Children Raise Parents. See what he's did there? How Children Raise Parents. And actually the first chapter starts with whose idols are really in the way. And it's a book that he expected parents to buy so they can figure out how they can keep their teenagers in line. And he says, why do you want to? What's really going on? Are you putting your own reputation above the good of your children? Whose idols are really in the way? Take the log out of your own eye before you deal with the speck in your children's eyes. It's a pretty powerful way to write a book about parenting teens. And I think he got away with it because most parents are so desperate for any kind of wisdom to deal with their teenagers, you know, that they'll buy every book they can find. I, don't, I think there are a few things that are more shame-inducing than parenting. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But here's what he says. He says there are two questions that every child is asking, whether they realize it or not. And wise parents have got to answer these two questions correctly and consistently. Here's the two questions. Am I loved? And can I get my own way? Now, what are the right answers? <laughs> well, the right answers are, yes, you're loved. And no, you can't get your own way. And it's part of the role of our parents to teach us about reality. 
not to shield us from it in every sort of way. And, and when parents answer these two questions incorrectly, it leads to all kinds of problems. Now, I actually at one point used to hand out a little Venn diagram that sort of illustrates this. But if your parents answer the question, um, am I loved, and there's a question mark for you, no, I'm not sure that I'm loved, and I know I damn sure am never able to get my own way, well, that certainly breeds a lot of resentment and despair and discouragement, right? What if your parents answer the question, yes, you're loved, and you can do whatever you want? Well, that also leads to a disaster. The most insecure students I've ever had are always the students whose parents didn't really care how they lived and never put restrictions on them. Because we know that someone who loves us is going to stand against destructive behavior, dehumanizing behavior, right? Can I, am I loved? Can I get my own way? Now the good news is, of course, that even if your earthly parents have not correctly answered these questions, and again, no one answers them perfectly and consistently, your heavenly Father is committed to answering them well, even if you don't like it. Even if you don't like it. You see, in the gospel, the good news that we talk about all the time here at RUF, we have the amazing news that we have been loved more than we ever dreamed was possible. That Jesus, the only son who ever knew what it was like to be loved by a perfect father, gave that up and took the wrath of that father upon his head to reconcile us to God. That's love like you can't even wrap your heart around. But in God, our Father, we have the only perfect Father who will always work for our good, even when it means thwarting our plans and telling us, no, you can't get your own way. As the Bible says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death, destruction. And God loves us enough to get in the way. So those are some preliminary principles. Now let's get into the nitty gritty. What does it mean to honor our parents? Well, what's interesting in Deuteronomy 5, 16, is it says, honor your mother and father. Now that may not strike you as strange, but if you were living in the ancient world, the idea that you should honor both parents is radically countercultural. Nobody would have said that the mother deserved equal kind of um, honor as the father, but that's what God lays down. In Leviticus 19.3, it even puts mothers first. And then as we found in Ephesians 5.21, husbands, wives, parents, children, masters, servants are all to submit to one another in the Lord. What does it mean to honor parents? That word honor in the Bible means to consider them weighty. Again, it doesn't mean that they have ultimate authority over everything in your life. We're going to talk about this in a minute. But it does mean to consider them weighty. Weighty, significant. My, my uh, friend and mentor, Scotty Smith, who I actually got to hear preach this morning at our Presbyterian meeting. Um, yeah, we had Presbyterian Valentine's Day, go figure. Um, <laughs> But we got to hear an amazing sermon from a man that has been huge in my life. Uh, he said, to treat them as weighty means that we are to accept the important place that God has given 
our parents in our lives. It really matters. You really do need to reflect on the important place of your parents in your life, whether that's good or bad, or as I'm sure is the case, a mixed bag. Uh, here's, particularly, he, Scotty drew out these four things which I thought I would share with you. It said, it means to accept God's sovereignty over the parents he has given. For some people, that's a hard thing to hear. It's a hard thing to hear. It means to treat them with respect. It means to listen to their instruction. It means to bear patiently with their weaknesses because they're finite and sinful just like we are. But it does not mean to worship them. How do we worship our parents? Maybe that's a weird concept. Let me, let me kind of break it down into maybe some more practical examples. To worship a parent is to give them the love and submission that belongs to God alone. Now, you might think of people like John Calvin and people that lived back, you know, pre-enlightenment days as being kind of ultra-conservative and sorts of things like this. But I think this is a fascinating um, quote as he begins to unpack what it means to not worship our parents. He says this, For parents sit in that place to which they have been brought by the Lord who shares with them a part of his honor. Therefore, the submission paid to them, to your parents, ought to be a step toward honoring that highest father. Your parents have been given by God to help you understand what it means to love your perfect heavenly father. Hence, Calvin says, if they spur us to transgress the law, we have a perfect right to regard them not as parents, but as strangers who are trying to lead us away from obedience to the true father. It is unworthy and absurd for their eminence or their glory so to prevail as to pull down the loftiness of God. On the contrary, their eminence, their honor, depends upon God's loftiness and ought to lead us to it. So I'm not just coming up with some new kind of postmodern idea that you shouldn't worship your parents. Christians have been saying this sort of thing for a long time. Honor does not equal worship. It doesn't even equal obey at all times in every place in every way. Honor is different. Furthermore, to drive children like slaves or abuse children sexually or un otherwise, or even to fail to protect them, is to forfeit the right to be called parents. Paul commands fathers to behave in a certain way toward their children to not exasperate them. God reserves the right to tell your parents how they are to live. Now that doesn't mean that they'll listen or obey, but it does mean that they don't have carte blanche freedom to do whatever they want. And they will have to answer to God one day. In other words, all those in authority, whether they be government authorities um, or your parents are not free to rule however they like, all those in authority are to model being under authority themselves in the way they lead. This is why Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church sacrificially. This is the model, of course, for all leadership. 
There's another way, though, that I think that we can worship our parents. One is to basically like give them the kind of submission and, and worship that only God deserves. The other, though, is to worship, you can worship a parent by putting them on a pedestal and having unrealistic expectations of them, expecting them to care for us perfectly. Scotty said it this way, all parents are sinners. No parent can possibly meet the deepest needs and longings of our hearts. Many of us are consumed with anger, hurt, and a victim's mentality because we have never gotten over the fact that we were not loved well by our parents. I don't say that glibly, because for some of you, like getting over, it's not just something you just snap your fingers and do. For some, this is a long, hard battle and fight. But to honor our parents is not to put them on a pedestal and demand they be God for us. And I think some, particularly Christian parents, are pretty unwise in this. I remember a mentor of mine used to say, no one has a right to separate somebody from the consequences of their sin because God has ordained consequences to attend to sin as a way to teach us and to help train us what life is like in the real world. But Christian parents do it all the time. They do it all the time. And in some ways, I think we can develop kind of this sort of want our cake and have it and eat it too. We want our parents to pay for us, to remove all the consequences of our sin and foolishness, and then we ever, we, whenever we get in trouble, but then we really don't want them to tell us how to live. <laughs> right? What are your expectations like for your parents? And as I mentioned before, like we could spend a whole hour talking about the different expectations that different cultures have. They really are different. And, and particularly when you think about even coming to, to come into a marriage with people from different cultures, there's really a lot you gotta talk through and, and work through. But here's what I'll say. And this is what we always talk about in premarital counseling. When two people come together, you have two family traditions, maybe really different family traditions, Look to both of them as wisdom, in some ways wisdom as to what you can do, should do, and also wisdom as to what you sure better not do. But you look to those things not as laws, but as wisdom. And then you have to look at God's word and wrestle together with what is it going to look like in our family, right? We don't just reject all tradition, but we also don't put it level with God's law. And I've found so many times some of the conflicts that we have with parents, it would be really helpful if the parents and the children could say, now is this actually like God's law or is this just like a tradition or how we do it in our family? And, and there's a lot of, lot of junk that happens because people fail to distinguish those things and they need to be distinguished. Christian freedom is actually a really important thing. Jesus says in John chapter eight, um, you know, the truth will set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And yet I, I, I hear very few sermons on the importance of Christian freedom. Well, um, here, here, let me talk about this, the way power works between parents and children. There's a guy named John Cox who's written some really great things um, he's come to RUF staff training a few times and helped us all think about these issues. Um, and, and he talks about this, about the importance 
of parents stewarding the power they have over their children well. Stewarding means using it for a greater purpose and a greater good, uh, because there are many different ways to exasperate your children. So think about it this way. When, parent, when, you're, when you were born, parents have absolute power over you in terms of physical power, in terms of economic power, in terms of intellectual power. But as life goes on, those absolute powers diminish. When you go to school and you find out there are other people that have ideas about the world other than your parents, some of their complete intellectual power over you is gone, or when you learn to search the internet, right? Um, when you get too big or too old to spank, if maybe your kids spanked you, or your parents spanked you, eventually, <laughs> yeah. It, eventually, eventually that, that you can't do that. Like, right? Um, economic power, eventually you get a job. And you're like, I can, I can pay for it myself, right? I know you don't think I should go to this college, but I'm gonna take out loans and pay for it myself, and you don't get to tell me how to live my life. Anyway, there's all these sorts of ways, um, but here's what's interesting. When you're born, the bond, the love bond between parent and child is really not established. It's really not. And, and so, like what parents are, would be wise to do is to use the power they do have to nurture and build the love bond because eventually that's the only bond that there is. Because parents are to train up children so that they would leave. Not so they would stay in this dependent relationship economically, physically, um, for all of eternity. Parents are to raise up children, and then they establish families and lives on their own, right? I think a lot of, if you reflect back on some of the issues, maybe even some of the issues you have even now, conflicts you have with your parents, how often it gets down to trying to use some of these powers when they really, um, it's really past the time when those should be the way that they're trying to control your behavior. And that's a hard transition. Let me tell you, it's a hard transition. Some of y'all are freshmen, you don't yet know, but like the first time you go back, after this first summer, you know, when you go back this first summer, after you've been on your own, and like your expectations of how you live and make decisions compared to your parents, it's hard, man, these transitions. And you gotta talk about stuff. You gotta, one of my mantras in life, talk through weirdness. Because people, you know, people just, have very different understandings and expectations. The, the one other thing I'll say, and then a couple practical tips as we come to a close. Parents should be very careful to not write an indelible marker the judgments they've made about your, their children. Listen, your parents know you really well, uncomfortably well, just like you know them. But I think one of the challenges in being a parent, particularly of college students, is realizing that your children may develop in ways that surprise you and I mean, that's true even when they're younger, but particularly like sometimes I, I can talk to parents and, and they have a picture or a vision of who their children is that really isn't who they are anymore. And so like you can't love people very well without making some kind of judgments about how they're living and whether you think it's promoting flourishing or destructive in their life, but you should write those things in pencil and, and have hope that people can actually grow and change. All right, 
couple practical applications, and then we'll call this uh, a night. Um, please have patience with your parents, right? They're finite, they're sinners, not saying excuse their sin, but love does cover a multitude of sins. It's important to distinguish between things that annoy you and things where somebody's really trapped in a sin that's destructive. And if you need help trying to suss that out, see one of the things that's interesting about college and doing college ministry is so often people get out of really like bad family dynamic situations and they don't realize it until they have a mirror from like, whoa, well my roommate's parents aren't like that. And they don't like call every, like three times a day, you know, like, or do this or never call and disappear. And I can't even figure out where they, where they are. Um, This is a time when sometimes you see things that you hadn't seen before, which means sometimes you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I've been like, you know, the, uh, you, you can almost overreact. Please speak about those sorts of things with people that you can trust that can give you some kind of perspective and feedback. And, and I will tell you, be careful with talking to people who are just always going to be like, yeah, you're right, your parents are awful. Like most of your friends hate to see you miserable. And so they rarely will give you the kind of advice that might be good for your soul, but make you unhappy. I find this all the time, <laughs> like in relationship you know, issues, and I hear the kinds of advice that friends and even parents sometimes give. And I'm sometimes, you know, sometimes I think you need to do the hard thing here. And it's, it's only a very wise friend or very wise parent that will encourage the right thing, even if it's gonna make you unhappy. So be careful in who you listen to. Um, but then have compassion on your parents. And I would go so far as to say, you probably need to examine and repent of the ways that you manipulate them. Because ever since the fall, where we were created to be in this mutually dependent, supportive relationships, now there's conflict and sort of trying to take power over one another. It's not just true of men and women in marriage, it's true of parents and children as well. And you need to be able to look at that. Most parents, like I say, are very aware of how poorly they parent, but they really don't know what to do about it. Like, it does, there, there's no real instruction manual, right? It just, like, you get kids, and then you got to try and figure it out. And, and I think there's almost no area in life that is more shame-inducing than parenting. It's so easy for us to make parents feel like they're complete incompetence. And I think children's pick, children pick up on this and know how to use it with their parents. And I really want you to think about that. Most kids don't really appreciate their parents until they have kids of their own. And parents know that. But man, it would be so nice. I remember somebody my senior year in college said to me, have you ever written a letter to your parents telling them how thankful you were for the good things they did? Hadn't occurred to me. And I I remember I wrote this letter to my dad. I remember he still to this day has never been really able to talk to me about it. But my mom told me how much it meant to him. Might be something to do. Um, Envision their glory, but don't shut your eyes to their sin. Now, I hope you'll hear me say this about every relationship. 
This is the main thing I would say, even if you're thinking of dating somebody and thinking about, is this person somebody I might want to marry? And I'm going to ask you, can you envision their glory and also see their sin? Because you don't want to be in relationships where you basically say, oh, they're perfect, don't ever change. Because being worshipped is very different than being loved. And eventually, it will really trap you. So why the Bible says in the Proverbs that flattery is a snare. Flattery is always an attempt to try and take control over you. So you want to be able to see clearly people's sin, but also envision their glory and feel that God, part of what he's called you to do is help these people become more like Jesus, which may mean sometimes having hard conversations. Speaking of them, I remember you know, a time in our life where one of us had to have a hard conversation with a parent about, I think that you're trying to get too much of your joy through me rather than uh, on your own. And that was a hard conversation, but it needed to happen and it was helpful. It was helpful. Um, so envision their glory. Don't shut your eyes to their sin. In your relationship with someone who doesn't put you on a pedestal, someone who clearly sees your sin, not just your annoying habits, but your idols, and someone who can long for you to be who you can be as you embrace the gospel more fully, who will pray and encourage you to become that person, that's a rare, rare thing. And this is how the Lord loves us. The Lord loves us. He sees our sin, our brokenness. He's committed, he's committed to completing the good work he began. But there's not a person in this room that's complete yet, right? And so God loves us by getting in the way and upsetting us, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, the Bible says, and God is a friend like no other. For many of us, I think we have to allow our perfect parent, God himself, to redefine what parenting is supposed to be. And here's what I want to encourage you with. You are not doomed to parent as your parents did. You're not. God has the power to break generational sin and patterns, but it doesn't happen automatically. You have to own the ways that you've been sinned against and you have to forgive and you have to commit to seeking wisdom from God on how then shall you live. And one day maybe how will you then parent. God actually can deconstruct and reconstruct what it means to have a true father. My favorite example comes from that hymn that we sang. Um, Henry Light wrote that hymn. I just love that, that verse, Father like he tends and spares us. Well our feeble frame he knows. In his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Now Henry Light lived back in the 1800s and as far as we, we know, like we're, it doesn't even seem like his father actually married his mother. He was like a military guy and was kind of shacked up with the, the mom. They had two kids, Henry and his little brother. Eventually, the dad abandons the family, sends Henry and his brother off to a boarding school, and from then on, basically writes letters to his son, but pretends to be his uncle, not his father. Like his own father, basically pretends to be his uncle, not his father. Like Henry is so deceived by this that when he goes on his honeymoon to Europe, he's, he's in England, but he goes on his honeymoon to Europe, he meets this guy, his father, who he thinks is his uncle, and his dad still doesn't tell him what's up. Eventually, 
he finds out this guy is actually his father and his parents were never married. And then he's in just this turmoil because he's married like a lady who's from a minor noble family. And now he's brought scandal on the whole family and some friends are here like, you didn't know. You didn't know. I mean, you've seen these Jane Austen movies, you know about, you know, all this, this is all a big deal. But, the, but just think about like this guy's father, how far removed he is from what a father should be. And yet what I find remarkable is every one of his hymns, the father image is a warm and comforting one. And you know, there's lots of things you can write hymns about. Like that hymn would have been fine without that verse. He didn't have to go there. I think the fact that he goes there in every hymn is a testimony to the way God has been able to deconstruct and reconstruct what it means to have a father. The father image does not have to be ruined forever. And he does it in his other hymn that we sing all the time, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. Think what father's smiles are thine. And he, sings it, he says it again in the one that we're about to sing, abide with me. It's remarkable. So have hope. God, the perfect father, from whom all other fatherhood derives its name, is the one who is able to bring healing and break the power even of generational sin and patterns. But again, it doesn't come automatically. What God wants us to do, and why we call this series Gospel-Driven Relationships, is we want the gospel, the good news, that we are loved so perfectly and securely, and know we can't get our way because we're loved so perfectly, to drive the way we live in relationships with our parents, with our friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, even our enemies. And this is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the love of Christ compels us. Does the love of Christ compel us? Does the love of our Father compel us to forgive and to stand against sin and manipulation? The only thing that's powerful enough to make you bold and humble in the right ways is the gospel that brings security that can never be lost. If you worship your parents, you of course can never confront them. But if you love them, you have to, and you have to forgive. Let's pray.